0: And, you know, so you got this pathetic thing with, like, urban world with late rates of loneliness that are spectacularly higher than ever in the history of the planet. You're walking by people in the crosswalk and looking down and away. You're getting on the elevator and turning and looking at the door. You're scurrying into your little apartment and locking the door behind you. You know, and then we call that living.
1: That was Stephen Hayes, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. He's a clinical psychologist and professor at the University of Nevada. He's the author of 46 books and nearly 650 scientific articles. He's a co-founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, which is the form of therapy that I use with my clients. In addition to his scientific contributions, he's just an overall awesome human being. I was so honored to have this opportunity, and now let's get into it. Slip the upon so since the podcast is inspired by the six processes of psychological flexibility laid out in ACT, and you're one of the co-founders here, I was wondering if you'd be willing to start our time together by giving an elevator pitch to the average person who's never heard of ACT to help convey why these processes might be important to consider.
0: Okay. I think I... Let me... Let me... Let me just see if I can do this in a new way. I've done similar things many, many times, and I want to see if I can touch a place where I can do a real elevator speech that is not just defining words. Okay, so here's the way I might do this. You know that you are more effective when you're open than when you're closed. And, and I know you know that. Because if I asked you to put your body in a shape, with you at your worst, I bet you it would close down. I bet you your head would come down, your eyes would close, your arms and hands would come in. And I bet you if I said, show me with your body, you at your best, I bet you your head would come up, your eyes would open, and your arms and hands would go out. So here's the deal. Could you learn in a step-by-step way, it wouldn't overwhelm you, how to bring that kind of openness to your own emotions, memories, and thoughts? And how, when you have those thoughts going on that frighten you or push you or wag a finger at you, that you could see them, hear them but with enough space that you're not threatened by them kind of the way you might listen to your children without necessarily have to entering into their arguments and if we could do those things could we look around to see where we are inside and out and to do that consciously so that more spiritual part of you the part of you that's behind your eyes the part of you that's there when you wake up at two in the morning and you're noticing that you're noticing and you're not disappearing into your worries and dreams and hopes but you're noticing that you're here and then take advantage of that to focus on what's important Hmm. what's important to you because it resonates deeply with what brings meaning and purpose and vitality and life to your life that it informs your life in the way that the heroes you look up to inform how you want to be or in the way that your deepest yearnings, uh, inform how you want to create a life worth living Mm -hmm. and then get about business of actually putting that into your life into your life's moments on purpose with what you do, what you say, what you read, what you put your life's, moments to your time to in the world of behavior well those are the six flexibility processes of emotional openness cognitive flexibility attention in the now consciously from this more witnessing sense of self that then can focus on what's important and create values based habits and turns out those are like six sides of a box they have names for them But there's practices that can support them. And just like six sides of a box, if you have six well-crafted sides that are put together in a well-crafted way, you have a strong box. And a well-built box you can stand on, you can build things on, it can be a foundation. If it's missing sides, you can't stand on it. It falls apart. If one or two sides are really weak, they'll crush under any weight you put it under. So... How do we get all six sides strengthened so that you have that kind of inner fortitude to live the kind of life you want to live and be there for the people that you love and the human lives you want to serve in the time that you have on this planet? That's psychological flexibility. That's our name for it. And uh, if you pursue the act work, uh, you'll be taught how to build that strong box one little tiny step at a time. In a way, it's not overwhelming. It's not woo-woo. It's real skills that you can use and that will you will know, not because somebody promised. You will know in your heart that this is building uh, an inner strength, a resilience, a capacity that you can put to what you most deeply care about. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate you doing it in that
1: new way with that sense of intentionality. Cause I'm sure you've talked about those processes so many times that you could so easily just fuse with the sort of story
0: of each one. Right. No, oh, um, absolutely. I can, there's whole paragraphs that sometimes come out, you know, sometimes the things I've written, uh, BF, if I tell this story, BF Skinner was my uh, hero, still is to some degree, although in some ways, you know, he was a human being and he had flaws. I knew some of them, but, um, Uh, and I I was able to spend some significant time with him when I was uh, a young academic or a graduate student. But I would smile when I was talking to him because he would say things that were word for word that were entire paragraphs out of books. (laughs) And they were brilliant, I mean, because he spent time carefully to craft the argument. Um, So it's a, I can see how you can, enter that space I'm deliberately trying to avoid it you know, it sounds disrespectful to say it that way I shouldn't I shouldn't say it that way but um yeah it, it's a temptation yeah
1: oh I mean we can do it in the therapy room with clients right you can kind of feel yourself going to that space where you talk about values in the
0: same way you did with the client before and it's important to be able to recognize that back wraps you know and then then yeah. you're so disappointed that the person that didn't land well with them well you weren't even half in the room with them what are you talking about yeah yeah, yeah.
1: i mean it's, talk about music i mean you could so easily do that with music where you can uh, play your guitar the same way and that's sort of Automatic mode, or there's you could slip deeper into it and really be there with it, and then
0: new things can happen from there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a kind of a leap of faith when you do that, of the, that leap into self-fidelity. The same root as the word faith, as fidelity, and uh, I think we when we go in the flow. It's kind of ironic in a way, isn't it? Because when you're in that flow and you're being creative, let's take therapy as an example. You know, you don't need a model when you're in the flow. (laughs) You're just in the flow. And you can dance with a client uh, and feel it. And you know that you're doing something that's really important that will last and that will... Move out into that person's social group, that you're in a way you have a whole Greek chorus of folks in there in the therapy room with you, people who have stake in how this turns out. And yet, um, if you're in the flow with a client a couple times like that, then the next time you're going to try to get there by doing the topography that you yes. did the last time. And that's the Mm -hmm. anti-flow. We're back to where we started. Mm -hmm. That's the logical mind overwhelming the psychological mind.
1: Where do you see psychedelics coming into this when we're talking about flow and variables that contribute to that? Or maybe a more general question is, how has your perspective on psychedelics changed since your time as a self-proclaimed Golden Gate Park hippie? (laughs)
0: Yeah, me and the whole generation uh, said, hey, let's just see if the chemicals will do it. No, the chemicals not going to do it. The chemicals will do it, but you don't know what the it is, and they do lots of different things. Well, they don't do much of anything, really. You do a lot with what it affords. You know, we know a little bit about how that works. When you enter into the world based on the stories that you tell and the narratives that you adopt and the the cognitive habits that you've created. You're grooving um, ancient neurobiological systems that were there before human language showed up. But human language penetrates and harnesses and controls like a big gigantic parasite. It's like a mold growth or something. It's going right in, it's, it's harnessing. Uh, ancient learning and sensory motor systems. So for example, the midbrain structures that are involved in the narrative self, the story that you tell about yourself and others and enables you to compare yourself to others, et cetera. It will actually harness sensory motor information that is a, a thousand times older. Um, more than a thousand times older and it'll actively filter it out so if if you take something like people uh, in a psychedelic journey saying that they suddenly see things physically sense things that were there all along that they you know how amazing that shape is or how green that grass is or how you know those are experiences that your sensory motor information is making available to you to your brain you could say but the grooving that you're doing cognitively just eliminates it it filters it out you can actually show it neurobiologically that there's like a There's these gatekeeper kind of functions that the narrative self will harness, and it will filter out anything that doesn't fit. And there's a reason for it because the gatekeeping kind of thing was filtering out sensory and motor information to make it relevant to your survival. The metaphor, I think, and I think it's similar, is if you have something like uh, a predator with prey in front of them, or Prey being you know, trying to escape a predator. There's this massive alliance of the entire organism to only focus on what's relevant to obtaining lunch or avoiding being lunch, depending on which side of this exchange you're on. I take a cat, put a mouse in front of it, then fire off a cap gun behind it. It'll be filtered out. You know, the the cat may not even literally know. I mean, the ear knows, quote unquote knows. But as it follows up, it just gets filtered out because it's not relevant. I mean, I've got a mouse. If you're going to give voice to the brain process, I've got a mouse to deal with here. And that would be really tasty. And random cat noises or whatever the hell that noise is, is not even relevant. And I'm not going to like bother my central nervous system with it. So it just filters it out. It's not survival relevant. This is happening all the time. There's things, sensations in your rear end you're not attending to until right this moment when I brought your attention to it. But, and that's fine. But what if this survival related thing now gets harnessed? by a system that's only a couple hundred thousand or a couple million years old, not half a billion or more years old that is involved with things like what kind of person you are. Mm. Well, you will defend that as if your life depends on it. Mm. And I think it'll actually harness these survival circuits that are very primitive and put them to its own use so that, you'll filter out information for example that contradicts the idea that you're loathsome and nobody loves you. Mm. I mean you could have you know god's gift to a loving relationship in front of you and you won't see the opportunity. Mm. You any more than the mouse hears the I mean the cat hears the the cap gun. Mm. You know this this kind of touches on something I'm interested in is there
1: seems to be a really like subtle, but powerful dynamic between the access to these more transcendent senses of self and how that can be co-opted by the conceptualized self. Yeah. They play
0: like a really delicate dance with each other. Well, as soon as you notice transcendence, the very system that you were Backing out of in order to experience transcendence is now claiming knowledge of transcendence, and so the the point you're asking about psychedelics is to close the point there. You know the what happens when you go to those gatekeeper functions and you and you open them up is that you're accessing things in a broader, more open way. I mean, you're now hearing the cap gun <laughs> or seeing the loving possibilities or appreciating the shape of a table leg, uh, uh, to uh, quote um, uh, Aldous Huxley, one of those famous things about his earliest uh, 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 psychedelic experiences. But then right behind it, uh, blah, 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 blah shows up, and you know, I mean, it was as a person sitting on Hippie Hill. It wasn't too far into that before it was like, well, there was a big us and them between the uh, the ones who knew and the ones who didn't. Mm. Um, you know, the narks and the hippies were like opposing camps, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Well, how is that not just the same thing, isn't it? And I think you easily get into that with spiritual experiences it opens a door and then behind it you may hang on to it like it's a precious little stone oh that was so wonderful oh this experience is okay but it's not as great as that time that time was so wonderful then you got to get back to it yeah i need to get back to it how did i get there uh not that way dude <laughs> you know how did i get there it's not how you got there you know and uh so then now it's a barrier. Mm-hmm. Your previous transcend transcendent experience is a, a barrier to the to the learning that's inside it and the possibilities that are inside it.
1: That's why I really like in the act immersion course. You have these really wonderful brief mindfulness exercises. We can call them. Where you can experience that opening, but in a way that you can really digest. I love the just saying yes to something. Yeah. Could you walk
0: us through that? Well, it's a really fast one because there you, you know, the language of yes and no harnesses (laughs) a large network of actions and reactions. And if people are just want to tap into uh, a space that opens up, you know, I, I use it often in workshops because it's so fast. But if you were to, the folks listening to us having a chat were to look around the room and see the things that you see and compare what would happen if with each thing that you see, focus your attention on it and then say, no. No, I don't like that. No, that's not good enough. No, there's something wrong with that. No, that doesn't belong there. No, that's ugly. No, that's dirty. No, that's flawed. No, that." And just feel what happens to your psychology as you do that. And then do the same swoop out of a room or within your body, whatever your experiences give you. And with each thing, as your attention lands, take just a moment to notice what you're noticing. And literally say yes. Put it inside a yes. Not yes, you like it. Yes, you want it. But yes, like, just like that exactly so welcoming seeing savoring sensing appreciating feeling and there's this expansive space i mean we use metaphors like that because there's no other way to talk about it that opens up inside of which creativity is possible transformation is possible new things are possible wholeness is possible peace of mind is possible and you know it. I mean, you, it's not like you don't know it. You know this space. It's just that the judgmental processes between your ears are not that. And it, that repertoire knows it too. And by the way, is overfed and is talking and even claiming to be you. So we're pretty clean, you know, you can turn, yes, spatial expansion into. Judgment. And after all, yes and no is a judgment, right? How can you get more judgmental than that? Yeah, no, but what's inside the yes is all of it, non-judgmentally, deliberately, on purpose, We'll We're back to John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness.
1: And once you and once you intentionally do that and have sort of a a framework. For that experience, you can start realizing how frequently you go into that space, but sort of push it out when you're looking at a sunset, when you're hiking for those brief moments, when you're with your, when I'm with my dog or with my partner, there are those moments where you open up, but your mind can very, almost
0: instantly discount it. Yeah. It tends to be just moments, doesn't it? And I I think in a way it's okay if it's just moments because we have things to do and Plans to solve and the hike, you know which path is right, and the dog—is there a burn or paw? And uh, you know, by the way, your um, lover. There's uh, some issues you have to face. I mean, the, 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 the metaphor I've, I've used is one of riding a bike. If you if you slow it down and watch, I think I used it in that course. I've used it for many years. I think I picked it up in the Human Potential Movement, but. If you slow it down and look at it in slow motion, you're always falling off balance. Nobody just rides a bike always in balance. That's not the riding of a bike. It's catching as you shift and then shifting your balance. Each time you push one foot or the other, you go out of balance. If you were to just stop still on the bike, you'd fall over. You're, you're adjusting in movement, and it's a lot easier to adjust in movement. So could we help? People create a space in which, yeah, there's transformational moments, there's transformational experiences, but you don't, you know, live your life inside an acid trip. You just don't, or a, a spiritual awakening, or a night on the carpet. Back to my 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 turn inside my panic disorder. That's in the TED talk. Those are are anchors, maybe, or sort of bright instances. But could you touch it? Touch it. Touch, and the touch. What is the it? It is the even wrong word. Could you bring yourself into balance so quickly and habitually? That is, you're constantly being knocked off balance. You know that your journey is one that's balanced, and your 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 intention is to remain in balance, and your practice is how to provide yourself the skills and space and contextual supports so that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. I, almost
1: sense, I almost sense it as like having a inner home base. Yeah. That you always return
0: to. Yeah, exactly. Come back to the center. In fact, I think in act immersion, I say something like, you know, when, and when in doubt, come back to the center. And the center in the hexagon model is consciously in the moment. Consciously in the now. Consciously, not meaning conscious, analytic, judgmental, but meaning awareness, not even awareness of anything, just awareness, period, end of story, right? As as this uh, social uh, creature that we are that pulled awareness into creation, that kind of awareness into creation, I believe, Uh, the I, her nowness of awareness, the fromness of awareness in the now, you know, that's the center. I think you're talking about, you know, one of
1: the additions to your recent work in a liberated mind, which is really the masterpiece is great. And uh, in your new act immersion course, and I'm sure in the other new work that you're doing is the integration of these core yearnings. Yeah. And one of them Just when you described it, just resonated so deeply. And I think everybody can resonate with these in the same way. And I would love it if you could take us through that core yearning for belonging and how, how the mind tries to attain it, because I think we can all just connect with that on such a deep level.
0: It's the, and you know, it's one of the primary ones. I mean, some yearnings actually. Happen a little later on in development. I mean, there's seeds of them, like coherence, for example, wanting everything to fit together. There's a seed of that in non-human animals and so forth, and in infants and so forth. But it's so much t- tied up with uh, maintaining the integrity of cognitive networks that it happens later on in development. That we really want to know what's right and to understand and. Uh, but belonging, man, that happens at birth. You know, we're the social primates. And if you take a neonate who's only been out of the oven for a couple hours and you get up close and look at that baby's eyes, if the baby's able to make eye contact, not all neonates will, most will. But at the moment that they do, I mean, within milliseconds, their brain starts dumping natural opiates. And why would you do that? Because you want that baby to go like, ah, I'm seen. Mm -hmm. You know, and you are evolutionarily prepared to recognize connection and belonging. You're physiologically prepared. You have whites around your eyes so you can see where your parents are looking. We're the only primates who have that. And So out of that yearning for belonging, which is necessary for our survival, because we're going to go through this long period where we're 100% dependent upon these giants around us for our survival over the next hours and days. Abandoned by them, we're dead very soon. We don't know that, but we kind of know that but we don't know that cognitively, but we know that by the heart of it. And, you know, babies who are not looked at, who are not touched, who are not cared for, who are not attended to when they cry, etc., their entire body mobilizes. They start doing epigenetic downregulation of stress-related... You know, they're, like, preparing for, for, for the worst, you know, because then we know by evolution, how dependent we are. Well, as that expands out, you know, that yearning for belonging, for inclusion, for being in the group, you know, kind of sensing that if you're the cast out of the troop, you're one dead monkey uh, begins to be distorted as language shows up and gives you rules as to how to do that but it also gives you self judgments and judgments of others that make it conditional. Mm -hmm. You're only going to be included in the group if they want you in, or if you've earned your way in, or if they see that they need to let you in. And so you start playing. If you want to see the pivot point, a place where that breaks If you're a parent, you know, it's a point where you almost want to weep when you see it. Look at the first, first, first moment when you withheld information from someone else or actually provided false information to someone else in order to be included. The first time that you lied, either covertly or overtly, either by omission or by stating a falsehood that moment is like a break because now you're in a system where you belong by performance, by wearing the right clown suit, by being you know the greatest of the great and the grandest of the grand you need me, I'll make your group great again, I'll sell you a baseball cap and uh, or help me, help me let me in I'm the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. So either way in, either self-aggrandizing or self-criticizing, self-loathing, either way can give you the illusion that you'll earn your way in. But here's the problem. the, the If it works, the group you're in is now no longer the group you wanted to be in because you got in by being special you got got in by buying into pretense or form you got in by the conceptualized self and the conceptualized other and the conceptualized self the conceptualized other is not the we that was there with the neonate making eye contact with mama or you when you kiss your lover Or you when you hug your child. The we that's in those moments is a real we without pretense, without form claiming to be you and providing the ticket in, whether it's helpless form or guy grand form, it's still form. And what it produces, even when it produces inclusion and group membership is aloneness Mm. because you sense, let's say if you do through pretense, you, you puff yourself up to, and and you kind of know you're doing it, but you know, like (laughs) you can easily see it's a lie. If If I say something like, what are the positive attributes that you like about yourself? Oh, I'm kind and I'm, Uh, Caring and all the time (laughs) with everyone. You big liar. (laughs) Well, you know, if you say I'm honest, what you haven't told a lie, really? That's a lie to say that you haven't told a lie. I know that's a lie. You know, that's a lie. Hmm. I'm kind all the time dude, you've done so many unkind things. What are you talking about? So here's this deal where when you buy into the form, you have to start lying to other people, and you have to lie to yourself in order to be able to do it with full vigor. (laughs) Okay, so now I've lied to get my way in, which means I've fooled the people who are including me. I've fooled my lover to thinking that I really am kind. I've fooled my teacher into thinking I'm smart I've fooled my on and on my friend to thinking I care, whatever the thing is uh how can you be lifted up by the fact that you're included in a group of fools? What kind of lifting up does that do? Mm. So whether it's narcissism or self-loathing, where you end up is is aloneness mm. And we are the the primates that are so social that even consciousness is social, values are social, language is social. You know, we are so social that we're, we're a we by birthright. And now we've taken the tools that that has given us when we invented language as a form of extended cooperation and it turned into problem solving. We've taken that, And we've turned it into a thing where we try to solve the problem of inclusion through the problem-solving mind, and it gives you the short-term pop of inclusion at the long-term cost of inclusion, and you end up just feeling alone. Mm. And, you know, so you've got this pathetic thing with, like, urban worlds, with rates of loneliness that are spectacularly higher than ever on the history of the planet. You're walking by people in the crosswalk and looking down and away. You're getting on the elevator and turning and looking at the door. You're scurrying into your little apartment and locking the door behind you. You know, and then we call that living. Living and our bodies know that's not what we evolved to do and our uh, you know uh, our own capacity for physical and social and spiritual and psychological health is being harmed by taking the short term pop over the long term substance Mm -hmm. of belonging by connection Belonging by connection is different than belonging by pretense.
1: You can really start to notice that very subtle but acute paradox throughout your days when you tell little lies. Oh, man. When, when you lie about even something little, about how something you did was <laughs> awesome when it was just okay, there's a moment where this uh, paradox emerges where you feel one part of you is like, oh, they're going to like me. And the other part of you feels empty. And that happen,
0: That can happen all the time. It's constant. It's constant. I have a little section in a liberated mind on lying. Yeah. And I kind of walk through how often we tell little lies and what motivates them. And most people think lying is, lies are motivated by external achievement and things you can get that's instrumental. So it's not true. It, it's motivated mostly by pretense and by... Uh, Buying into the the self story. Um, In the liberated mind, I uh, have a little uh, a thank you in the the forward uh, part to Guy Ritchie, the Madonna's ex, the director, et cetera, who um, became a friend. They sort of I no longer can reach him. You have to go through his people too. I guess maybe uh, he may not be still interested in it, but he's a, an act fan. And for years we had conversations and we were going to do a book on the ego, but he put me on to this. And I actually wrote a chapter of that book that was to be out of, a, after a conversation I had with him, that if, if you could just go a day and catch and correct every lie, before it comes out of your mouth, that you would so confront how ego-based mm-hmm. your day is yep. that you'd have a, like, a, a sense of how you're living inside uh, like a, a football helmet or something and not even aware that you're wearing it. Yep. Uh, he had a, a, a film called The Ego Has Landed I showed it at one of the early act boot camps. I don't think it'll ever be shown, but um, he did a live action one and I wasn't satisfied with it. I really loved it, but it was brutal. And, and, but uh, And then he did a cartoon one and then the cartoon one, everybody's walking around with a helmet on their head and nobody knows they have a helmet on their head. <laughs> <laughs> and the helmet on their head actually has the capacity to like like, like, dangle things in front of you, you know, that you can chase and stuff. It was a metaphor for the the conceptualized self, harnessing everything. We're back to the, these midbrain structures filtering out even sensory and motor information. You literally don't know the world you live in anymore because the conceptualized self filters everything out that doesn't fit it. It's so pathetic and so poignant and so human it really you know makes you want to cry for us But mm-hmm. we're the creatures who uh, belong by birth and then spend the rest of our lives trying to earn our way into belonging wow. is that just an inevitable part of the human journey though i think it is and the the spiritual journey that we're all on whether you know it or not you may not call it spiritual blah 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 but uh, one reason I think it is a spiritual experience uh, journey is that something like 95% of the human population say they've had spiritual experiences.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You could ask them about the qualities of it. What they always include is a sense of universality across time, place, and person mm-hmm. that you feel especially connected. You feel as though there's space is no longer the limit. You can sort of sense your connection to other sides of the world it, time is not the same thing it sort of feels as though past and future is not the limiting kind of thing there's a so well this time place and person I, uh, you here there now then or what the rft folks can show and how show it not just by theory but because they can take kids who don't have a sense of self and establish it or uh, at the core of the i hear nowness of awareness that is begins with that moment of connection between I, you, mama, baby, or daddy, baby with eyes, and it is built out. But the very language capacity that it builds it out will also contain before and after, good and bad, I'm better than you. I mean, it's going to contain the very cognitive methods that will take this spiritual being that we are in one sense of the term and turn us into this conditional, never quite there yet, you know, the asymptote never hits the goal (laughs) creatures. And I think most of us sense that in these spiritual experiences, you met raised psychedelics. That's one thing. Why psychedelics have such a profo- profound experience? Why I'm very interested in psychedelic therapy and using ACT as a form for doing psychedelic therapy because it looks as though a couple of windows, a little vision, you know, like seeing the other side of the fence or seeing that lighthouse in the distance, can then give you a guide. Uh, but it's probably the same kind of guide that you could get by just not lying for a day. If you could do it, it's
1: almost like uh having an experience it's like if you were just wandering in the woods, it's a psychedelic experience or not lying for a day could show you what
0: direction to head in and then exactly. you, then it's your work to to get there exactly, and that's you know one step at a time and the there that you're getting is uh not a place it's not something you can grab and put in a box it's a it's a, a direction so you know no matter how big you get there's more big to get that that no matter how consistently you can come back and maintain that balance to talk about this earlier metaphor or no matter how expansively the space is how, how expansive the space is at the zone of growth there's this question of yeah but are we big enough to have this <laughs> and you're never It never ends. I don't think it's That never ends. I mean, the Dalai Lama (laughs) says he gets mad. So, you know, 50 years of meditating is not enough. You know, and we don't get 200 years to meditate. So, in the finite universe we live in, it's just a a journey and a direction. And, boy, we could do so much more. And, you know, I, I, I do wonder, like, do we have enough... Spiritual presence and values connections as a human community to avoid destruction of the planet, to avoid blowing ourselves up, to avoid uh, the immigration crisis that we see, to, you know, go on, go on through it, to avoid hunger and poverty and disease unnecessarily, etc. et cetera. I don't know. I don't know if we do. But I darn sure know that we're, we're, we're not really yet using the resources that will allow us to find out because so many of the times all of us are living a more limited life than our hearts yearn for and that our, our cognitive and psychological capacities afford with that
1: last point you made there to make these changes, it really comes down to changes in each individual heart. And um yeah, for so many of us, we have aspects of our conceptualized self or certain thoughts or feelings that are really these huge weights holding us back, which is a big part of the work. And one exercise I love that you do that I wish I would love if you could end with is that, diffusion exercise of going back to when you first had that, that thing and connecting with that part of you, would you be willing to walk us through that and end with that?
0: No, I mean, walking back into the little kid kind of, kind of uh, side of things. Yeah. Well, let me do it just in uh, may not be exactly the exercise you're thinking of, but let me do one that I think will, um, uh, be useful to people and and you know diffusion is along with values uh, probably the two things that are most characteristic of ACT compared to other things almost everything else is, was really pretty vigorous and uh, you know the more um, depth oriented clinical were maybe not with the same theoretical development and so forth that I think has been important to the ACT journey but uh, diffusion skills, understanding that part of what we're doing is deliberately, you know, turning down the excessive domination of analytic, judgmental, uh, temporal language, uh, uh, and doing that on purpose, and then connecting that to a larger purpose. Those those two things, I think, are the biggest so here's what I would like folks to do is that they want to sort of touch that is to take a thought that pokes you right now that is uh, difficult for you and the self judgmental it includes some sort of feature of there's something wrong you did it wrong there's something wrong with you there's something about you there's something it can't be opened up to and go into this, so the essence of that thought and open up to how old that thought or thoughts like it are it may be deep inside the structure and the details it could be about something specific how you're doing the podcast I don't know Inside it is something that might be sort of like, I'm not good enough. See if you can find something inside a thing that's bothering you that's pretty darn old. And ask yourself, how old were you when you first had a thought like that? And take the time to picture yourself at that age. Put yourself in front of you as if you could meet yourself again. somehow it's safe to be there perhaps the child doesn't know that you're he or she grown up but you know full well that's you and take a little time just to sort of picture yourself and how your mannerisms your face the clothes you're wearing how you are at that age and kind of just appreciate this younger version of you who's on this journey and is already having thoughts that are self-judgmental and critical and difficult and hard, this little one. And what I'd like you to do is to have that child say out loud the thought that's bothering you now, Or if the details of it are only things that are only adult would have the core thought that went all the way back to you at that age. And actually in imagination, allow the thought to be said out loud so that you can hear it in the child's voice. Let he or she give voice to that. And hearing it, my question of you is if you could actually be in this situation, what would you want to do? How would you want to be there with the younger version of you, even while that younger version of you is experiencing thoughts like that? just allow what comes to mind to show up. And if there's something in imagination that you can do, you can do that in imagination. And if there's a message in what that moment pulls from you, you can put that into words in such a way that even the adult part of you were will remember, like, oh, I need, or what I want to do when I tap into these kinds of self-judgments is, and we'll just kind of write that down, language is helpful in that way, then we'll say goodbye to the kid and we'll come back to yourself sitting here listening to this podcast and my question to you is uh, whatever that little kid uh, got from you is, is that something you can give to the person in the mirror when you brush your teeth are you worth any less i've done this with many several thousand people in workshops over the years and can tell you, I've never had somebody say, Well, what I would have said is snap out of it, you big baby. Mm-hmm. I've just never had that happen. But you'll do that in front of the mirror. You'll just try to criticize yourself out of your self-judgments or shame yourself out of your self-blame. I mean, it's just that's the kind of creatures we are. Usually what happens is people want to do things like give the kid a hug let them know that it's okay yeah
1: well we really came full circle here talking about expansive uh states of consciousness and that's where i just ended up through that exercise so i really appreciate you doing that for me and the listeners
0: well that expansion maybe can include even that little kid part of you that's still with you and maybe uh when you connect in consciousness to so the people in the day remember they've got a little kid behind them that is also wondering how am i going to deal with these difficult thoughts you know we are the social primates that created this thing called human language that then has allowed us to create for example the technology that allows you and i to speak right now but also tempts us into blame and shame and avoidance and self-pretense and all the rest. And uh, that's the tiger we're riding. And that's the journey we're on individually and as a human community of how can we uh, have that capacity without having it um, um, so rule us that we're not able to be the kind of creative or create the kind of creative loving space that we came here to create well thank you so much for being willing
1: to do this it was a real honor getting to talk to you and i've learned so much from you through your work and it
0: means a lot to me it was great spending time with you good luck with the podcast thank you we'll be in touch